0: I actually read the peer-reviewed literature published at the time and it gave me the impression that there was something very wrong with me and that it would be safe to have surgery to fix it. They even attribute labial hypertrophy to masturbation and sexual activity. Those claims have been published in a major plastic surgery textbook called Janus Essentials of Plastic Surgery. It's used to train plastic surgeons all over the country. What people need to realize is that misinformed consent is not consent. And when doctors are misinforming patients, it's extremely unethical. My consent was based on lies about my anatomy published by doctors. And these lies continue to be published by doctors 16 years later.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counselling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello Humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. One of the good things about interviewing people about their medical error experiences is the feel-good stories about making the health system safer and making meaning out of trauma, a phenomenon known as post-traumatic growth. In this interview with Jessica Pinn, she shares the insight she's learned about the gross deficiencies in the medical system where it intentionally maintains blind spots about female anatomy and female sexuality. A medical system where surgeons are performing procedures on female genitalia with shocking little understanding of the female body. Jessica, the daughter of a surgeon, recounts her own experience receiving a surgical procedure that she did not consent and to which the doctor had no understanding or training. This unwarranted surgery would impact Jessica's intimate relationships, her relationship with her parents, and her relationship with herself. In her efforts to make meaning out of her medical injury, Jessica sought the support of psychiatrists and therapists, but she again experienced dismissal, minimization, and invalidation, essentially further harming Jessica as invalidated trauma deepens trauma. Eventually, through her own efforts and self-education about recovering from trauma, Jessica focused her efforts on changing the system to prevent more women from being physically harmed, sexually diminished, and psychologically traumatized. You can support the podcast by becoming a subscriber on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical trauma and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Jessica Pinn and a word of warning as always, that some folks may be triggered by Jessica's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks Jessica. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
0: Um, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I think my childhood was pretty normal. So it is sort of relevant to my story that my father is a plastic surgeon. So I grew up learning about surgery and even looking at my dad's surgery textbooks and going to the OR with him. And so surgery was very normalized. It was treated, you know, like, I grew up learning about my dad reattaching someone's thumb or making someone a new nose, you know, things like that. And so, surgery never seemed very scary to me. And I also grew up really trusting doctors and trusting in medicine.
1: Okay, and I I know that that's going to change when we get further into your story. Uh, so, what did you do with your with your own education? Did you go into the healthcare field?
0: um i actually did want to be a doctor starting in high school uh, but my dad kept telling me not to do it um oh how come he said i wouldn't be able to have what he had that medicine was changing um he thought i could be happier and make more money doing something else i ended up being pre-med in college but i did biomedical engineering so that you know i could maybe do something else if i wanted to um I also, you know, I've, I've always been really good at math. I've always loved math. And so biomedical engineering made sense. I didn't end up going to medical school. You know, what happened to me happened at the end of high school. And it was something that I struggled with throughout college. And so at the end of college, I decided I couldn't move on with my life until I figured out how to deal with what had happened to me. I felt like I needed to be able to get acknowledgement for what happened to me and help stop it from happening to other people. Um, I really needed some kind of justice and that's what my idea of justice was. And I did talk to my dad about going to medical school, but at that point, what I had seen is that what happened to me happened because of very obvious systemic problems. I was interested in who changes medicine And my dad said that doctors don't change medicine, and that's not quite accurate. Um, In fact, doctors are really the only people who can change medicine most of the time, though I have been pretty successful um, without an MD. But at this point, I really think an MD would have helped. (laughs) But maybe I'm learning things that I wouldn't have learned because I don't have the credentials, you know, and because I'm, I'm still figuring it out without them.
1: Right. Okay. So let's back up then and go back to, (laughs) that's okay, to the end of high school. And so what happened there where your life intersected with the healthcare system?
0: When I was 17, I, you know, I hadn't been well educated about my, about vulva anatomy. Um, Most women aren't. So at 17, I still didn't know what a clitoris was. And so I Googled to find out and i also ended up googling other anatomical terms and that was the first time that i learned what a vulva was or what labia minora were so i don't know if maybe i need to explain sure yeah the labia minora are the lips surrounding the vagina and hopefully everyone knows what the clitoris is but it's the primary organ of female sexual response basically at the top of the vulva and hopefully everyone knows that, but at 17, I didn't. And so I was trying to learn. And in the process of Googling these anatomical terms for female anatomy, I was bombarded with advertisements for labioplasty and with labioplasty surgeons' websites and labioplasty information websites that had false information about causes of labial hypertrophy and about I actually read the peer-reviewed literature published at the time and it gave me the impression that there was something very wrong with me and that it would be safe to have surgery to fix it. Um,
1: So it sounds like they were maybe pathologizing normal body appearance?
0: Exactly. Um, To this day in peer-reviewed medical literature, Doctors will publish that labial hypertrophy is caused by excess androgens, which is not true, by aging, for which there is no evidence. There is only evidence to the contrary, that the labia are actually shrink with age. They even attribute labial hypertrophy to masturbation and sexual activity. Those claims have been published in a major plastic surgery textbook called Janus Essentials of Plastic Surgery. It's used to train plastic surgeons all over the country. Still. Still, yeah, I I contacted the editor and I I feel bad for saying anything negative about his textbook because he said he would try and get it changed. But, you know, what people need to realize is that misinformed consent is not consent. And when doctors are misinforming patients, it's extremely unethical, right? So my consent was based on lies about my anatomy published by doctors. Um, And these lies continue to be published by doctors 16 years later.
1: So why do you think, uh, and how did this originate? How did it emerge in the medical field as a problem?
0: In the 19th century, uh, large labia minora were seen as indicative of excess female sexual desire as symptoms of nymphomania. And so they would treat that by amputating them and also sometimes the clitoris as well. Large labia minora were described as deformities um, as early as the 19th century. And I think this is all caused by a fear of female sexuality and taboos surrounding female sexuality. I think that you know, external female genitals are threatening <laughs> It ultimately just has to do with uh, misogyny and repression of female sexuality. This occurs for the same sort of cultural reasons as female genital mutilation. This idea that any kind of external female genitalia is unfeminine and that there's something wrong with it. And um, the pathologization of labia minora started with pathologizing female sexual desire and just female sexuality in general. It has its roots in this idea that, fem- that women shouldn't be sexual. Um, this urologist actually sent me this whole paper on the psychomorphology of the clitoris. Um, it describes sort of how taboo around the clitoris has caused it to get omitted from medical literature, and these same patterns are behind the stigmatization of large labia minora. Mm.
1: There's sort of the fear of sexuality generally, and then there's the fear of woman's body should look, and then there's also that control of a woman's body and her sexuality. It's all wrapped up into this thing that they say that the treatment or cure is a surgery.
0: Exactly. And, and that is how this all started. That's how all this stigma around labia minora started, but now they will actually market labiaplasty by saying that it improves female sexual function.
1: Of course they'll say that in marketing.
0: Um, But one problem is that in outcome studies, patients will actually report that they have improved sexual function. The reason this is happening is because a lot of the time women seeking surgery have so much shame around their anatomy prior to surgery that they won't be able to relax, or they will be too self-conscious to participate in certain sexual activities like cunnilingus. And so they will actually score much lower on female sexual function scales because of these psychological issues that would be better addressed, not through surgery, but through education and through uh, you know debunking all of the lies that doctors are publishing. <laughs> In my opinion, doctors are creating the problem and then they're treating the problem they create.
1: Yeah, yeah. Here's an illness and here's the treatment and thanks for your payment. Um, So going back to your surgery, uh, so you had it when you were, I guess, 17, 18 last year of high school. So your parents support around that? How was that?
0: It was within days of my 18th birthday um what originally happened is I originally went to my mom and I said that I was worried that my labia minora were ugly and she said that was a stupid thing to worry about that they were supposed to be ugly but you know I was a 17 year old girl and I was very vain and I didn't want to be ugly anywhere and I felt like my mom didn't know what she was talking about because it wasn't consistent with what I'd been reading on the internet you know which was that Bulbous should be beautiful and should look a certain way, right? And so she took me to her OBGYN and I wanted to know how normal I was. And the OBGYN would not tell me how I compared with other women. She sat there and she told me I was normal, but that meant nothing to me because I had read online that OBGYNs are told to tell all patients that they are normal regardless of how unusual they look right? And so that was meaningless to me um, because the recommendation is to tell all patients they're normal. So I wanted to know what percentile I was in and she wouldn't tell me. And back then there was no modern data on normal labia morphology. Um, The first study was published in 2005, so I barely missed it. And if I had seen that study, I would have been protected from having surgery that I didn't need But instead, I came across some 19th century data that indicated that labia minora, two centimeters long, was in the 93rd percentile, and that coupled with all the stigmatizing false claims about labia minora, like that they're caused by aging and sexual activity and masturbation and excess male hormones, caused me to think that I had something really wrong with me and really embarrassing. And so I was very desperate to fix it. And being told I was normal didn't make any difference. And so what I did is I claimed that they hurt me when I rode my bike. Now, if someone's labium minora really were hurting them when they <laughs> ride their bikes, um, a new bike seat would be a really sensible solution, not surgery. But I told my dad that they were hurting me when I rode my bike. And so what my dad did is he asked around for the best OBGYN surgeon at the hospital where he works. What he will say is he wasn't trying to find someone to do the surgery, he was trying to find someone he could trust to tell him whether I needed surgery or not. So I went to the doctor who was recommended as the best OBGYN surgeon at the hospital where my dad works. He apparently thought I needed surgery, or according to my dad, he thought I needed surgery. According to him, I made him do it. So so there's these conflicting stories. I was barely 18 years old. I had no idea what was going on. I just thought I had an embarrassing problem and I thought it needed to be fixed. Um, I remember asking my doctor what my labia minora were for and he shrugged. I had read online and in peer reviewed medical literature that there were no serious complications and that there were no risks to sexual function. I definitely was not told by my doctor that there was any risk to my sexual function. What my doctor ended up doing is he completely amputated my labia minora and he did a clitoral hood reduction without my consent and he cut the dorsal nerves of my clitoris and denervated my clitoris when I was barely 18 years old. So I lost clitoral sensation permanently in a separate surgery done without my consent. Um, my labia minora were completely removed which is something that should never happen since I haven't defined the clitoral hood yet I don't think that's what covers the clitoris and what most people including doctors don't understand is that most of the clitoral hood is the skin of the clitoris so the clitoral body is the part of the clitoris that is under the top of the clitoral hood and it is basically like a little shaft and the nerves travel on the top, they travel just under the skin of the clitoral hood. And so if you're operating on the clitoral hood, you're fundamentally operating on clitoral skin. In my opinion, what he did fundamentally is clitoral surgery without my consent.
1: Wow, okay. So you have the surgery and you come out of it, when did you realize things were not right? So I knew
0: that I had lost external sensation pretty immediately after my surgery. And my solution was to just go have sex because I thought there was something magical at my vagina that would cause me to orgasm, right? Most women orgasm from their clitorises. Most women need external clitoral sensation to orgasm you know, again, the clitoris is the primary somatosensory organ of female sexual response. But at 17, I really needed not understand this. And despite the effort I had made to learn my anatomy, I hadn't found my clitoris. I still didn't really understand what it was. And so I was very, I was very much in the dark after my surgery. And I really didn't understand what happened to me. And I really felt like it was my fault because I had lied to get surgery and it had been my choice. So, you know, I, I thought that it was my fault. I also very much thought that I needed surgery. I thought that I had this awful embarrassing problem. And I think a lot of girls feel like that. You know, I've had girls DM me and say, teenage, teenagers, um, say that they care more about what they look like than about their orgasms. <laughs> and if that sounds so crazy and fucked up, but I think, that, I think that you can feel so much shame about your anatomy that it's like, you just feel like it needs to be fixed. And in my case, after my surgery, I felt that I had been unlucky, but I felt like I had needed my surgery. And I also just trusted that my doctor knew what he was doing and that, you know, what happened was just unlucky. <laughs> and I also don't think I realized how bad it was. Like, I think I was kind of in denial and I thought like it would get better. I get messages from women where they say that they've lost sensation, but they're, they've are they been told that it will get better. And I think that, yeah, people, <laughs> People hope these things will get better, you know?
1: Yeah, nobody wants to be sick or disabled forever. We all hope we'll get better.
0: Yeah. And so that was August 2004. By June 2006, one of my boyfriends asked me, you know, he asked me if I'd been having orgasms, and I told him no. And I told him I didn't think that I could because of my surgery. So at that point, I knew that my surgery had taken that for me. And yet I still, you know, I still didn't try to file a lawsuit or anything. And I, yeah, it's really hard to explain what was going on.
1: Yeah. A whole mixture of emotions there that are sometimes conflicting because you sort of felt responsible for seeking it out and getting it. But then also... Uh, sort of betrayed in having this extra procedure that you did not consent to?
0: Okay, so that's something that I didn't understand for a very long time. So, it, <laughs> And this is actually super relevant because it is very common for women to not know their anatomy very well. And so what's going on is patients are not being adequately consented. And sometimes these clitoral hood reductions are being done without patient consent. I've heard of this happening in multiple cases from women who have contacted me. And it's incredibly fucked up. So I didn't understand that a separate surgery had been done without my consent for years. Cause again, I didn't, I didn't know where my clitoris was. I didn't know what it was. I really didn't have a good understanding of my anatomy though. I had tried looking up the anatomy. I just, I I don't know what happened. I think that I very quickly ended up, you know, looking into labiaplasty and, and giving up on finding my clitoris because I read somewhere that some clitorises are hidden. And so I just figured mine was hidden and I stopped looking for it and I stopped trying to understand what it was. So I really had no idea. I didn't know the difference between the labia minora and the clitoral hood. So I didn't understand that anything had been done without my consent.
1: Okay. So when did that realization come along?
0: Honestly, I was 23 by the time I understood that a clitoral hood reduction had been done without my consent and it took consulting with a plastic surgeon about a possible repair Um, and he told me too much of your clitoral hood was removed for me to recreate new labium (laughs) nora. And so that's when I looked at myself and I realized, oh yeah, there are scars and oh, now it makes sense. Like why I had lost sensation before that, I couldn't explain why I had lost sensation. It didn't make sense. My whole story didn't make sense, you know, and it's very hard to stick up for yourself when you don't understand what's happened. Um, And it's also very hard to stick up for yourself when something is so taboo that you feel like you can't talk about it. Also, you know, when I first told my parents, I was in 2008, and my dad's response was, "I'm sure that didn't happen." And my mom's response was, "I told you not to do that. Don't involve your dad. You understand secondary wounding. <laughs> that didn't happen, and it's your fault are secondary wounding statements. You know, these sort of reactions make it very difficult to talk about traumas.
1: Yeah, they deepen the trauma.
0: Yeah, so, you know, it, it was very hard to talk about things. When I first brought it up to my ob it was my original ob partner. And it's sad that I was just so trusting that I really believed she would be honest with me.
1: <laughs>
0: now it almost seems comical that I expected that. She looked at me and she told me that I looked normal despite my completely amputated labia minora. And she told me my surgery could not have affected my sexual function. That happened. And the ob after her, uh, she said she was horrified that my labia minora were completely amputated. But she also said my surgery could not have affected my sexual function. This was really hard to deal with.
1: So how did you deal with that?
0: you know, I, I had my life, you know, I had school, I had other things going on. And I think that sometimes we just deal with things because we have to. So, you know, I had all of these emotions going on that were hard, but I, I also had my life. So, you know, and, and I would deal with it a little bit at a time. I guess the way I dealt with it was by doing my own research into what happened to me, because I knew that what I was getting told wasn't true. I, I knew... You know, basically, I was being confronted with this absurd level of ignorance.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so when did you start to become an advocate? Because that also sounds like a way of dealing with it, processing it, and turning it into meaning.
0: Yeah. So I started wanting to change things in 2010, but I didn't start doing anything publicly until 2018.
1: Okay. So how come the time between what was going through your mind, what was sort of preventing you from jumping in earlier publicly?
0: Well, I never thought that I would have to take anything public.
1: Uh,
0: That was not something that I wanted to do. Talking about vulvas publicly is kind of, well, I guess, like now I do it all the time and it doesn't seem like a big deal. I think before it seemed like something that I just wasn't allowed to do that would be humiliating and embarrassing. Um, I never thought that I could tell anyone what happened to me. You know, when I first posted about the clitoris on my Facebook, I was so anxious. I was so worried about what people would think. Yeah, so I I never saw myself doing that so um, that
1: that sounds like your first sort of public uh coming out was a facebook post yes, and how how was the response to that
0: well, actually it was I wrote a medium article on how the innervation of the clitoris was missing from OBGYN literature, and I wrote this after I had gotten an email back from a urologist who told me that she didn't know how to get the anatomy disseminated. She said that the way that information gets disseminated in a specialties literature is it gets published in journals, then in textbooks, and then taught in residency programs, and then put on board exams. And that's the process. And it's very slow, which is a problem.
1: That and sounds said, like many years.
0: Yeah. And she said, the problem is obgyn journals are not interested in studies of female genital anatomy. And it- <laughs>
1: okay. That sounds wrong
0: yeah and it's true there i mean i hate to say it and OBGYNs get offended but if you look at their literature that's what's indicated the innervation of the clitoris was missing from OBGYN literature until 2019 and this can only be explained by a lack of interest you know i've been told by OBGYNs that they don't think detailed clitoral anatomy needs to be taught that it's not relevant to their practice I've been told they have more important things to worry about. So this is an issue. The American College of OBGYN, which is the professional society for OBGYNs, has their recommended curriculum for OBGYNs. And they say that the innervation of the clitoris does not fit in that curriculum.
1: Okay, so, so take us on this journey from when you wrote the Medium article, how was the public response? And then it sounds like you've really had to go into sort of the publishing and, and that right. sort of aspect of it too.
0: So the reason I wrote the Medium article is because I was just getting fed up because contacting OB-GYN leadership was not getting anywhere. And so I posted this article online and I posted it on Facebook. And I got a pretty good response. I had a lot of people share it and like it. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say whether posting that helped me start getting a better response.
1: And so your advocacy efforts during those years when you weren't public, I guess, what were you doing in the background? Because it sounds like you're getting a lot of education about how the system's n- not working.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to explain what happened to my 20s, honestly. You know, I think I decided that I needed to get some kind of justice in 2010. My first strategy was to reach out to my doctor and, you know, tell him what he had done and try and get him to help me because he has a lot of influence and he could do a lot to get things changed if he were on my side. Um, Instead, he chose to deny some of what he did and to blame me. He denied the clitoral hood reduction. What he says today, since one of his colleagues confronted him about it, is, you know, because she has examined me. And so she called him and she said, you know, you did this to her. Um, So he said that I must have done it to myself. Um, That's his new excuse. Uh, It's really crazy. So that was my first strategy and it didn't work. And I became very depressed and suicidal after I got his response. Um, I attempted suicide. Just a lot of time went by where I was very severely depressed. I was afraid to report him to the Texas Medical Board And so that was, you know, that was my second plan was to report him. And um, I was just so scared. Part of the problem is my dad has been in medicine for a long time and he is a bit jaded about how state medical boards respond to errors. And so he told me the board would blame me and take my doctor's side. And so that was very scary. He was just trying to protect me when he told me that, but you know, I wish that he hadn't. And I wish that I had been brave enough to report my doctor instead what happened is i kept putting it off because there was no statute of limitations and then you know eventually i worked up the courage to report him but they had passed a new statute of limitations and i had missed it by two weeks so then i had to come up with a new plan for how i was going to get justice and make a difference (laughs) you know i was just trying to understand the way medicine works and how to change it you know because i could see that basically surgeons were doing surgeries they weren't trained to do on anatomy they didn't know that much was clear I didn't know how to change that and so you know my first idea was to meet with the head of patient safety at the hospital where my doctor works and where my dad works and so i wrote him and back then i was so afraid to say what happened to me that in my letter to him i only vaguely referred to my adverse event and i said that systemic problems had caused it and that they were continuing to cause it to happen to other people that basically there was this preventable risk created by really obvious systemic problems that could be changed. And so he agreed to meet with me, you know, my plan was to go armed with a bunch of evidence. And so I, you know, I started, I had started writing this paper that would explain everything, that would go over all the literature on vulvar anatomy and, and, you know, how inadequately discussed and, female general cosmetic surgery literature how it wasn't in ob literature even though ob are considered qualified to operate on vulvas um, i went over just a number of things like how patients weren't being properly consented and uh, it was a very it, it got very long and my plan was to take it with me as a reference because i think i was just so afraid of being discredited because I'd been told things were all in my head, that it was crazy, that it was wrong, right? Anyway, so that was my plan. And what ended up happening is I chickened out and I basically ghosted this guy. (laughs) So he wanted to meet with me and I was like, oh shit. And I was afraid and I didn't. And I didn't meet with the head of patient safety at that hospital until 2018. So seven years went by and it was so hard because, you know, back in 2011, when I was afraid to meet with this guy, I, you know, I had a psychiatrist and I tried seeing therapists. What my psychiatrist said to me was that I wasn't dealing with what happened to me well because I'd never gotten over things that something that happened when I was 15, which was totally irrelevant. That's another secondary winning thing when you tell someone that they're not dealing with something well. It felt like nobody understood how I needed justice. I needed, and to me, justice is acknowledgement for what happened to me and something done to prevent it from happening to others. And they have done research, and that is what most victims of medical errors need, or at least that's what helps them move on and be okay. So that's what I felt I wanted. Um, And I really felt that if my injury could translate into better care for other women, it would, help make it more positive for me and I explained that to my psychiatrist. They said I was trying to make the meaning positive and he told me I couldn't. And I remember hearing that from him was very discouraging. And so we got in a big argument and I stopped seeing him and I tried going to other therapists. You know, other therapists would ask me questions like why do you need justice and why are you doing this? And I just felt crazy. Like and no one ever said I'm sorry that happened to you. No one ever said that. And that was really hard. You know, there are documents on my computer where I talk about how hard it is for me to, like, because I'm trying to make sense of it. Like, why is it so hard for me to talk about what happened to me? And, you know, for me, it was like I had this invisible injury and I wish that it had happened to my arm or my leg, because if I was missing an arm, it would be totally obvious to everyone and people would be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, that's awful. But instead I had this invisible injury and it was like, people didn't understand it. It was like, they treat it like it was nothing, even though it's so, so significant. And, you know, I had one therapist tell me that I was normal. Like, you know, she was like, you know, you're normal because a lot of women have trouble with sexual function. I'm just like, I am not normal. I was mutilated. Like, this is crazy. That was not reassuring to me at all.
1: (laughs) So not only is the medical system betraying you, but psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists are also betraying you, undermining you, invalidating you.
0: Yes. Um, At that time, so there was no one like you who helps people deal with medical errors. I couldn't find that. When I googled um, resources for people um, who have been victims of medical errors, all I found was resources for doctors, not for patients. The other thing is, you know, and this may have been impacted by the fact that I was in Dallas, Texas. My therapists were visibly uncomfortable with the subject matter. They would get uncomfortable and change the topic. <laughs> so I was there to get help with dealing with this trauma of my surgery and they wanted to talk about my mother or just you know other random things and it was frustrating because i needed to figure out how i would deal with like having my genitals harmed (laughs) and they weren't comfortable talking about that and so that was hard and i remember very frustrated because i felt like you know for other things they're like trained to know how to help people and i did a lot of my own research i did a lot of my own research on resilience and i did research on you know how patients deal with amputations and did a lot of research on how women cope with rapes Um, that was pretty helpful for me but my experiences with therapists were really unhelpful and I if I could go back in time I wouldn't see any therapists. But it's hard because like hindsight is 2020 and now I can look back, I can can see, oh, that led to a poor outcome. But at the time, you know, I kept trying to see therapists. I must have seen at least seven, maybe ten. I saw a bunch. It made sense to keep trying that because everyone thinks like if you're dealing with a trauma, the answer is to go get professional help. But it wasn't helpful.
1: Yeah. There's a, uh, just like the whole medical system, a, a lot of the medical system is, is good. You know, you have a broken arm and they're probably going to treat you well, but if you have something that's medically marginalized, then it's a whole other medical system and you're marginalized and the, the quality of service is just not there, and the rate of harm is much higher. So that that idea is also applicable to mental health, too. Lots of mental health is helpful, but there's a chunk where if your illness is medically marginalized or they're ignorant about it, then, as you discovered, they're not helpful and sometimes can be unhelpful.
0: Yeah. like In my last appointment with one therapist, she said that maybe I should see a psychiatrist instead because she had never understood what happened to me. (laughs) So one problem I think was back then I wasn't as good at explaining it. I see this when I interact with other women who have been similarly harmed. Sometimes they'll send me just very long messages where they sort of get into so much detail that it's difficult to figure out what they're saying. And I think that, that's sort of what was going on with me. Like maybe I was just sort of overloading them with information instead of just like breaking it down as, you know, a surgery was done without my consent, my nerves got cut, the end, instead of like going on and on and on. And I think that would make it confusing.
1: That's their job to help you clarify your thoughts and feelings. So I'm going to leave that on them, the therapists. Um, But when you did your own research about resiliency and recovering from trauma, uh, what did you learn? So sort of for the people who are listening, what's one skill that you took away from that that you found helpful?
0: Well, I actually read that meaning making is correlated with resilience and that finding a way to make a difference and cause your trauma to transform into a learning experience and into something positive actually helps people like victims of any sort of trauma who get involved with activism tend to be more resilient and so that was the big takeaway for me
1: absolutely post-traumatic growth you may have come across that term when you were researching
0: yeah i did
1: Yeah, Uh, it sounds very much like that's what you're experiencing now with your advocacy and awareness and putting a lot of your time and energy into making meaning because we are meaning making machines. It is almost impossible not to observe something and try to attach meaning to it.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, the fundamental thing is I think that medical errors should all be considered opportunities to learn and one problem in medicine is how Medicine doesn't, isn't really designed to learn from mistakes. And that's been the most disturbing part of this whole experience. You know, practically nothing changed between the time of my surgery and 14 years later, when I started speaking up. <laughs> and that's a bit crazy to me. You know, like, why are these, why is it taking me to change these problems? Medicine should be designed so these problems can correct themselves and so that you know, doctors are more incentivized to help solve these problems. But often errors don't even get acknowledged and there's a lack of incentive to solve systemic problems that make error predictable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like you say, it seems obvious that it should be a self-correcting system, but it's not. It's a protect the doctor's circle, the white coated wagons and bring in the lawyers
0: yeah but in this case it's so simple like (laughs) surgeons operating on vulvas just need to be taught better anatomy it's very simple and there just needs to be basic training standards like there are for other surgeries Uh, so one thing that i've done is i've tried to make it so that surgeons can't get privileges to do labioplasty unless they've been trained and i haven't been successful and the reason why i haven't been successful is because the American Board of ob and the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical a- Education tell ambulatory care providers, they tell surgery centers, that all ob are qualified based on residency training alone, despite no training in labiaplasty and despite a lack of adequate education in vulvar anatomy. So these organizations that the public trusts to ensure a high quality of care are not protecting patients at all. Um, And they don't seem incentivized to do so, which is very strange. They are the most responsible for the standard of care, but they are not liable when the standard of care is low.
1: Say that again, because that's really important. They are uh, responsible for the standard of care, but they're not responsible for when things go wrong.
0: so, if you think about who is capable of changing the standard of care, that is professional medical organizations. In OBGYN, that would be the American College of OBGYN, the American Board of OBGYN, and the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education. None of them are held liable when the standard of care itself is negligent. Entities with the power to change this at scale, I mean, if I could get any of these organizations on board with the changes that I am trying to effect, this could change overnight. They have not been cooperative, which is why I took this problem to social media. It's been incredibly frustrating. In my opinion, those organizations should be sued um, when they neglect their mission statements, when they neglect their responsibilities. So basically there's this, There are these open loops. There's no good negative feedback system that motivates change in medicine. Lay people often think that the medical liability system does that. But actually, systemic negligence is is a defense in court. So if nobody is trained, if nobody knows the anatomy, you don't have a case. You can't even get, well, a lot of the time, you may not even be able to get a knowledgeable expert witness. I personally didn't pursue litigation, but I have heard stories from other women who have difficulty getting lawyers to take their cases, and even in the craziest instances. So there's one woman who I really need to win because she stands the best chance because her surgery was not cosmetic. It was a repair after sexual assault. So I'm really hoping the jury will be a lot more sympathetic.
1: Okay. So what's next for you in terms of advocacy? You seem to have a really good realization of what you're up against in terms of these uh, institutions and how they're not taking responsibility for the change that needs to happen.
0: You know, I tend to just try and grow my voice as much as possible. I try to grow my online presence. And I think that helps. You know, I just go after one textbook at a time and you know, I have, it seems like the more I change, the easier it is for me to get people to change because I can email them and I can say, look at all these other people I've gotten to agree to change. And so then that creates this sort of peer pressure. And so then people are more willing to just sort of fall in line. At this point, I've gotten 18 textbooks to agree to change. I've also, you know, I got an anatomy app to get updated, I, um, I got Medscape and UpToDate to agree to change their content. And I also got Lippincott, who makes the posters in clinics, to agree to change those.
1: Wow, that's, those are huge accomplishments.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see. It, it's so hard to know, like, how things will turn out until they actually get published. You know? So I'll know that I've been successful when I'm in a doctor's office and I see a poster on the wall that doesn't omit vulva anatomy, right? Right now, the posters on the walls in clinics, the male reproductive anatomy poster has over twice as many labels, even though female reproductive anatomy is more complicated. And though there is super, super detailed anatomy for the penis, there's only surface level anatomy for the vulva.
1: Yeah, I'm sure nobody is surprised by the bias towards males being getting more and better care and more research on our bodies.
0: In my opinion, it's not so much a problem with a lack of research, so much as a lack of dissemination of the research that is done.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So a lot of the information is there. It's just not getting through the medical system and into the clinicians.
0: Yeah. Also, people need to realize that um, the anatomy I'm trying to get doctors to learn is incredibly, incredibly simple. Like, I call it stone age science (laughs) or or caveman science, you know, because you could probably dissect the dorsal nerves of the clitoris with stone tools. That's how easy it is. These nerves are really large. In my study, they were two to 3.2 millimeters in diameter in the clitoris on average. It's really crazy to leave them out, especially when you think of how detailed anatomy is for other parts of the body and how advanced medicine and science are. The idea that doctors are operating on women without paying attention to where giant obvious nerves are, it's just really, messed up
1: it is very messed up so you're obviously having some success in your advocacy work how's your personal life how's your headspace
0: well my headspace has gotten so so much better since i've started making progress you know for years honestly i was really depressed and that's how it took me so long to start Doing anything effective. You know, in the old days, I would just get so afraid and I also would give up too easily. Like I sent out a few emails, and when I didn't get responses, I just got depressed. <laughs> and for all I know, those doctors didn't even see my emails. I had to learn to be more tolerant of failure. And that was really hard. I mean, honestly, when I first started, I got so angry and Part of the problem is I was so afraid of failing and it was like, I saw, I had one plan for how I would change things. And so I saw like only one door. And so I just kept putting it off and putting it off. I just had this one plan to meet with the head of patient safety and that was the only door I saw. But really there were tons of doors and that door didn't even end up working out, but others did. And so eventually I just had to say, fuck it and start doing anything I could come up with to do. And I've made a lot of mistakes, I've made enemies, (laughs) you know, I have haters, (laughs) but I have also made a difference. And so that's been really great for me. But it's been super hard because in the beginning, you know, so I would just put this off and put this off because I was so afraid to fail because I thought, you know, I had to succeed or I didn't know what I would do. Like, I didn't know what I would do if I wasn't able to change things. And so I would just procrastinate. And I guess part of that was because I had a bit of a fixed mindset. I don't know if you're familiar with like mindset science. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I was just so afraid. and But part of the problem is because like when people tell me that they don't want to teach this anatomy or they don't want to make sure that doctors are trained to do these surgeries, it makes me feel worthless. Because in my opinion, When doctors make decisions to do surgery, they're not trained to do on anatomy. They don't know they're treating patients as worthless. And when they look the other way, when their colleagues are doing that, they're treating patients as worthless. And so I have felt sort of treated like I am worthless. Like I am not, like I don't matter enough for my injury to even be worth preventing. And I think that that's been sort of painful. Like every time, you know, like, I've had OBGYNs tell me to my face that they don't think OBGYNs should have to learn the innervation of the clitoris. And to me, that's like telling me to my face that they think that my injury is acceptable. And that's like so invalidating to my worth and dignity. It's hard to explain. And so that's been, that was the most painful part of my activism and that has gotten a lot better as I have been able to make an impact. So every time I'm able to make an impact, I feel more like I matter. And like, it's, <laughs> does this make sense?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Like, I think, you know, I think I said before, but I think it's an affront to the dignity of patients when medicine doesn't learn from mistakes. And so when I'm able to make medicine effectively learn from what happened to me, I feel I regain dignity for myself and I feel better about everything.
1: All right, so when you affect change, it, it impacts your self-esteem, self-confidence, how you feel about yourself. Just backing up a wee bit to when you get triggered, when a OBGYN refuses to acknowledge your injury or that it could be an injury for other women what can you say to yourself they don't in that moment to
0: acknowledge my injury <laughs> they say oh i'm sorry that happened to you but they refuse to help do anything to stop it from happening to others
1: okay.
0: and they tell me that it's just not that they have more important issues to worry about and so when they say that they're saying they're willing to let what happened to me continue to happen to other people yeah that's that's honestly been the most painful thing and, and that was the most traumatic part of my injury it wasn't what happened it was knowing just how predictable and preventable it was you know so i was sitting there knowing that people would continue to get harmed like i was because no learning was taking place and i also knew that many were harmed before me for the same reason
1: Uh, So when you're triggered by an OBGYN who says it's not important enough for me to look into, consider, work on, what could you say to yourself in that moment which would counter the negative feelings that you feel in that moment?
0: Um, Well, I think that just understanding how much bias, there is, I think, you know, it's painful for, so doctors have so much of their identity and self-worth tied up in their credentials and in their education. And I think it's painful for them to acknowledge that it might be inadequate. And so that's where a lot of the resistance comes from. And I think also it's painful for doctors to ever have to recognize that maybe they have been practicing irresponsibly and maybe they've been putting patients at risk i think that's you know a really hard thing for anyone to want to admit to themselves and so basically there are these psychological barriers for them that get in the way of them wanting to speak up or help do anything about it they also, I think, just get really uncomfortable saying anything negative about their profession. They get really uncomfortable saying anything negative about their professional organizations. A lot of them don't feel empowered to change anything. And so I think that that also gets in the way. So they'll rationalize that there's no problem because, see, you know, they'll see it is too difficult to try and confront. I don't yeah. know
1: if that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. It's all, it's multifactorial with the why they don't make change. So if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, how would they do that?
0: Um, so I am Mediclit on Twitter.
1: How do you spell that?
0: M-E-D-I-C-L-I-T
1: That's your Twitter handle.
0: Yeah and on instagram i'm jessica underscore and underscore pin p-i-n
1: jessica underscore and a-n-d
0: and Ann is my middle name a-n-n
1: a-n-n underscore pin awesome well thanks for sharing your story and and all of the advocacy efforts that you're doing it really sounds like you're starting to make inroads into a place that doesn't really allow a lot of inroads in
0: yeah yeah and i really do think the problem is so much bigger than just this like i i realize that there's all this stigma that makes care for vulvas especially poor but i think the problem where medicine isn't designed to learn from errors is a much bigger problem that is likely affecting patient safety in many other ways.
1: Absolutely. Could not have summed everything up better. Thank you, Jessica. Have a good day.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: Well, a big thank you to Jessica for sharing not only her experiences, but for her efforts in getting the medical textbooks changed and updated to reflect the reality of the female body and female sexuality. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. You can support the podcast by becoming a subscriber on Podbean, Spotify, itunes and all of the major podcast platforms you can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron to video versions of the podcast interviews go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical trauma and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.